Jesus overcomes the zombie apocalypse. Um, so, I was thinking, you know, you know, Christmas, you've got the season of Advent that comes prior to Christmas, and, and you get these wonderful themed messages that, that sort of prepare us for Christmas. And I was thinking to myself, you know, for some reason, the Christian church doesn't have that for Halloween. And uh, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if we have, I don't know what you would call it, the Advent to, to Halloween. And so I thought, uh, why not preach on zombies? And uh, all silliness aside, I think you'll see from this passage maybe a surprising connection to zombies. New birth, why do we care about it? Why is new birth important? The passage that I've selected today, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, uh, will help us answer this question. And so if you would, please stand with me. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, I pray that you would give illumination to your word that you would help us to understand what it means and apply it to our lives. Holy Spirit, uh, would you fill this place and, and fill us with understanding. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I don't know how many of you heard of the story uh, not too long ago, uh, a 58-year-old Russian rock guitarist, uh, Andre Shuchilin. Uh, he, was, he was on a flight uh, leaving from vacation uh, from the beach in Spain. And uh, while he was on this flight, people began to notice a horrible smell coming from this man. Some people got so sick because of the smell that they, they vomited. Someone, someone said that uh, it smelled like he hadn't bathed in weeks. Um, it, it got so bad that the, the captain of the flight prematurely landed just to kick him off. They said that the smell smelled like rotting flesh. And, and in fact, his flesh 
was rotting. He had, he had contracted an a, uh, infection. And it, it's odd because it's, it was a flesh-eating infection, only it was eating his flesh from the inside. Exterior, he looked fine, except for the fact that he smelled. You wouldn't have known that he was rotting from the inside. Even the doctors didn't know right away what was going on. They thought he had contracted a common beach infection. They prescribed him a normal course of antibiotics. But by the time they figured out it was this flesh-eating bacteria from the inside, it was, it was too late for him. He passed away about a month after that. So on the surface things generally looked okay for a while anyways you could just smell that something was off in Andre Shuchilin's case unfortunately he didn't get the care he needed the the question I have for us this morning is this what does life look like how do we define what living is Is it simply being able to breathe? Is it simply being able to walk and do things, to be active? Like Andre, is it possible that we can appear alive and okay, but be dead and dying underneath? In our passage this morning, we are going to examine aspects of the human condition that speak to an underlying deadness that afflicts us. And it can only be fixed by being born again. It can only be fixed by receiving new birth. In fact, new birth only makes sense if you understand three conditions that are true about us that I'm going to share with you. New birth is necessary only if we understand that we're dead, we're blind, and we're poor. If we believe that we're living, that we can see, and that we're rich, then there's no need for new birth. Being born again doesn't make sense. We already have everything we need. We don't need a remedy. But if our true state is that we are dead, blind, and poor, then we need help. We need to be born again. We need new birth. And that's my aim, is to describe from this passage those three conditions. And so the the three points are new birth is necessary because people are born spiritually dead. Number two, new birth is necessary because people are born spiritually blind. And number three, new birth is necessary because people are born spiritually blind. Poor. Point number one, new birth is necessary because people are born spiritually dead. Let me uh, reread verses one through three. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
So we get this picture, uh, we're dead, that's what he says first. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. But then he says, in which you once walked. And so right there you get this picture of the walking dead. Those who, are, who appear alive, there's activity, you can see people doing things. And yet, what Paul is saying is that we're dead, or we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We appear alive, but there's something very dead about us. In our culture, is there anything that appears alive and yet is dead? What is that? Zombies. It's interesting. Uh, Paul is writing to the Ephesians to say that they were once walking dead. And uh, we are all once zombies. This is, a, this is me as a zombie, actually, uh, a few years ago, or more than a few years ago now. And uh, this was taken before Halloween, like two weeks before. And it's interesting that as I was walking, I had several people come up to me and genuinely ask if I was okay. <laughs> Paul continues, we were dead, okay, but walked. How did we walk? Paul says this in verse 2, following the course of this world. Following the course of this world. So this, there's this picture that Paul's starting to paint. Following the course of this world. I don't know if you remember Hot Wheels. I don't know if it, I, Hot Wheels were these little cars, and they didn't have any power to them. They weren't like remote control. They were just sort of dumb. But you could buy these sets these ramps, right? And, and you use gravity to make the cars move. So you started the car up high and you dropped it and it went down these ramps. And if you had enough speed, it could even do loops and things like that. And it was cool, but they were dumb cars. It was only because of the course that was set that the cars were able to move somewhere. But they could only go where that course was set. They couldn't go outside. They didn't have a mind of their own. They went where the course went. And that's kind of this idea that Paul's getting across is we're dead walking, following the course of the world, these preset courses. We, we, don't, we're, we can't escape these courses. We're, we're, we're confined to these grooves that are set by the world. Now, who creates these courses? Who's behind these courses? Paul continues following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So partly uh, combined with the world is this idea there's a spirit who is at work in the sons of disobedience. Is this a good spirit or a bad spirit? Bad. It's a bad spirit, right? He is at work in the sons of disobedience. He's He's in cahoots with the courses of this world, okay? So, so there's, there's this spiritual, and we talked about, about this a little bit a few weeks ago in, in spiritual warfare. There is the reality of an evil spirit who is helping to make sure that we stay on those courses, that we're not following God, that we remain in disobedience to God. So what do people do following these courses? He says in verse 3, among whom 
we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. These these uh, desires, the passions of the flesh, tie back to verse 1 where he talks about being dead in our sins and trespasses. This is living in disobedience to God. That's what it means. That, that by nature, our, our minds and our bodies are bent towards disobeying God. And, and we could unpack it and talk about the Ten Commandments and just talk about even the, the number one commandment, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, as yourself. We, we fail to do that. That's what it's saying. We, we are bent towards disobeying God in those ways. And so the picture here is, that, uh, is of bondage. We're, we're, in, we're enslaved to our natural desires, our natural desires which tend to disobey God. So we're, this, we're these dead people just following the course of this world, following the, the passions of our flesh, and we can't help it. And so there, there really is this, this, this sort of connection to this cultural idea of zombies. And, and it's interesting. There, there, is a, there is a professor that is part of a real university that teaches a course on zombies. He teaches a course on zombies and their cultural significance. And I want to read a quote from him. This uh, came on an article published by NPR. He, he says this, The reason zombies are so terrifying to us is because they represent one of our greatest fears, a loss of our autonomy, our ability to control our bodies and minds. Zombies are almost always cursed with an irreversible, less than attractive subhumanity in the single-minded pursuit of some task or thing such as flesh or brains. With only a few imaginative exceptions, zombies cannot love, laugh, or live freely. I don't know about you, but that strikes me as very similar to what we're reading here in the passage. The walking dead, following a predefined course, unable to do anything except follow the passions of our flesh. And Paul is saying that that this type of death we have is, is like slavery. It's like bondage to our selfish desires. It's not physical death, right? We're, we're still walking. We're still talking. We're still doing things. But he still says we're dead. And the deadness comes from a spiritual inability to, to, to obey God, to follow God, to, to, as we'll see, really see God for who he is. Because in reality, if you step back, to disobey God is... is only makes sense if God is worth disobeying. In other words, if you can see God as good, if you can see God as great, as you, if you can see God as for you and not against you, then why in the world would you want to disobey him? It's like a good and loving parent. Like the, a kid who disobeys their good and loving parent is foolish. And in that moment of disobedience, they can't see their parent as being good to them. They see their parents being restrictive, but they don't have all the knowledge to know that if I cross the street, there might be cars that hit me. They just feel like they're restricting my freedom, and that's us. We feel like God's restricting our freedom because we can't see that he knows all and is actually for us. And that brings me to my second point. 
that when we're dead, we can't see clearly. We're spiritually blind. And so new birth is necessary because people are born spiritually blind. Let me continue reading in verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. How do we overcome the zombie apocalypse? How do you defeat zombies? There's two primary ways. You kill them or you cure them. You kill them or you cure them. Now, now God could do either. Verse 3, uh, it says that we were by nature children of wrath. In other words, we were, we were born as God's enemies. Because when, when, we, um, when we sin... When we disobey God, we declare ourselves to be an enemy. We be, if we understand it like this, God is, is king over all the universe. He's ruler. He sets the laws. He, he, he dictates what it means to live in his kingdom. And when we sin, when we disobey God, we are basically declaring ourselves against the king. And so he has a right. He has a right to get rid of those who disobey him. Now, let's explore the second option to cure or to transform. Why might you want to cure a zombie instead of killing a zombie? Feel free to answer. What's that? God's creation? Yep family member, right? I mean, if you've seen some zombie movies, like sometimes your family becomes zombies, and all of a sudden, instead of wanting to kill the zombie, you're like, wait a minute, that, that's my wife, or that's my mom, or that's my dad. Maybe we can cure the zombies. So the, the reason why we might not want to get rid of zombies is because we love them, their family, their creation, their God's creation. And so this is what God does with us. God created us. We rebelled. We were enemies. But we read that God doesn't choose to just get rid of us. In verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive with Christ. He chose to cure. He chose to transform. He, he chose to bring new birth. That's what it means. Make alive again. That's what he's doing. That's the idea of new birth. We were dead, and, and, through, and Jesus says, I'm not giving up on these people. Even though they shake their fist at me, even though they, they ignore me and, and try to live their lives their own way, I still want to pursue them, and I'm going to pursue them because I love them, and I'm going to make them alive again. So that, why? So that they can see me as good. And that's what we get in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us 
in Christ Jesus. He, he comes to, to bring life again so that we can see him as kind, so that we can see God as good, so that we can see God as great, so that we can see God's love. Now, how do we see God's love? It's in his kindness in grace. Grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The, the, the ultimate way that we see the love of God for us is in his sending his only son to die for us. A son whom he loves, his, his very own being, he sends to die for us, to take our place, to take our punishment. And in so doing, he demonstrates just how much he loves us, that, that when we question God's goodness, we get to look through the lens of the gospel. Like, I have glasses because I don't see clearly. At night, if I don't have glasses on, I can't see the signs, and I don't know where I'm going. But what, what, what he's saying is he, he wants us to see, he wants us to put on the lens of the, the gospel. That, and, and the reason why is because sometimes we're blinded because we can't see because we, we see pain, we see suffering, we see our circumstances. Like maybe it's relational turmoil and struggle and we don't have any answers and, and all we can see is I'm in this circumstance that I don't like. Where is God in the midst of my pain? Where is God in the midst of my struggle? Or maybe it's health things. Maybe it's uh, pain or ailments, some things that are happening to your body that you can't explain, and where is God in the midst of that pain? And if, if all you can see is your circumstances, you can't see the kindness of God. Or if you've defined your kind, if you define God's goodness and kindness by your circumstances, then, then you're going to be here, there, and everywhere with regard to what you think about God. What he's saying is that God's kindness is defined by the demonstration of of what he did on the cross for you. That's the best thing that God could have ever done for us, is to die for us. So if we put on those lenses, all of a sudden we can see God in a new light. The new birth is what God does through Jesus to give us sight, to give us something to look towards in terms of understanding who God is. It's interesting that later... In this, in this uh, letter, Paul writes this in verse or chapter three, verse fourteen, and following. Actually, I'll read verse eighteen, um, verse seventeen. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is Paul's heart. And he's, he's, he's writing this letter to Christians. So he's, he's not writing to unbelievers here. He's writing to believers that presumably have already been born again. And he's asking them to, to remember what you once were, what God did, so that they can see the, the, and that idea, the breadth, the breadth, the, the length, the, the height, the depth. In other words, in every dimension, in every direction, uh, 
for infinity, that's the size of God's love for us. And it's something that we can see most clearly when we look to the cross of Christ. And that's what I want for us. For us to see God's love in that way. And that's what Paul wants for us. So let's continue. The, the last point is that we need uh, new birth. New birth is necessary because we are born spiritually poor. New birth is necessary because we are born spiritually poor. Uh, let me read verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're dead. We're slaves to sin. We're, we're blind. We can't see God as who he truly is. The question is, what do we need to be able to follow God? Do we need money? Do we need clothes? Do we need talent? What do we need to follow God? It's an interesting question. Is the person who's rich in a better position to follow God, rich financially? Is the person who's super talented in a better position to follow God? The, the, the problem is not that we lack materially. That's not the sense in which we're poor. We're poor because we can't see who God is. Our motivations need resources. Our motivations need help. The problem is that our motivations are lacking. And this is what it means to be spiritually poor. It's interesting, uh, the story of, um, in Mark chapter 12. Actually, let me, let, me, let, me, um, let me get it at this way. Let's say a billionaire comes to Harambe and gives us $50,000. Okay, that's more money than probably any one of us would give to Harambe this year. Now, if the Lord's laying on your heart, don't let me... Don't let me stop you. But in reality, that's probably the case. Now, the billionaire who gives $50,000 to Harambe, um, is the billionaire doing good? What do you think? Here, a yes, I see a nod. I see several nods. Interesting. He's doing something. I don't know if it's so easy to tell. Uh, so now I want to look at the story from Mark 12. And, and this is, I think, a similar situation. So Jesus, it's interesting, Jesus is sitting. Like, like imagine, imagine Jesus like sitting by the giving box, okay? And like as you're going out, people are going and, and giving uh, to the church. So, so in here they're giving to the temple. And Jesus is like posted, just like watching them, okay? Watching them give. And he watches several rich people come and give large sums of money. And he doesn't say anything. He's just kind of like watching. And all of a sudden, he sees this poor woman come, and she has two copper coins, and she drops those two copper coins in the basket. And all of a sudden, Jesus speaks up. Like he's, and, and this is what he says. 
I don't have. It says, uh, a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which uh, made a penny. Go to the next one. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And so Jesus is looking beyond the superficial. Like a lot of us would say, oh, they put in all this money, they're doing a good thing. Jesus not necessarily saying they're doing a good thing or a bad thing, but what he is looking to say, this woman has done something incredible because she gave sacrificially. She gave out of her lack. She gave in such a way that she felt the giving. Right? A billionaire who gives $50,000 doesn't feel that. That's like me giving $5. I don't feel, that's not going to change my life. That's not going to affect me one bit. But this woman who gave all of her life savings, that affects her. That tells us something about her motivations. And so to give out of her poverty, she demonstrated that she was actually rich. She was actually wealthy. She was, because she had the motivation which saw God as good. And the way in which we um, the, the way in which we are made wealthy is by the gift of God's grace. In verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We're given this gift of grace. That's his son dying for us, giving us new life. That's a gift that, we're, that we receive, not, not by anything we do to earn it, but solely based on what Jesus did for us because of the love that God loved us. And from that, it says, we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. It's the, the good works that we get to do are, are pulled from that bank account of God's love for us. The grace that he gives us empowers us to now do good works. And how does that work? It's new motivations. It's a new life. It's new eyes to see God as good to actually want to live out the good works that God has called us to do. And so now we, and what are these good works? Well, there, there are lots of versions of good works, but, but what is God doing? Like, what's God's mission? God's mission is to reconcile all people to himself, to create a new people who are dead. And the good news, or the after the good news is that we also get to participate with God in that work. And he gives us all the resources we need. So we, we don't have to wait until, until we have all the money. We don't have to wait until we have all of the things that, that culture would say is the good life. But, but in Christ, we have uh, sight to see God as good. And from that, we have an inexhaustible supply of God's love out of which to do God's works. And it comes from understanding who we are in Christ. And as I think about how God has worked this in me, like I wouldn't be up here if I wasn't born again. I could think of better things to do. And it's because of the love that God has shown on me, because of what I can see as God took me who was sinful, who still is sinful, 
who still has thoughts that if I played on the video, you would say I couldn't be up here. That God has taken me and he's loved me with a great love that's been proven in the death of his son. And that because of that, I now get to share that news with other people. And that's what motivates me to be up here. Nothing other than that. And I've seen God change and transform my life so that I, I now want to pursue him. I now want to follow him. I now want to tell others about him. And the things that I used to love are fading in their significance, are fading in their appeal. And, and that's what I want us to be about. We, we want to be a church that wants to see new birth because God wants to see new birth because God is making us alive in Christ and he's doing that work and and I want to live my life for that purpose and I want us to live our lives for that purpose in Christ not to be motivated out of guilt or shame or out of a sense of debt that we owe but because Jesus has been so good to us and so as we go forward, that'll be one of the things that we want to encourage us. How do we, how do we share this, this news that we have to see others blind and have sight? Let me pray for us. Father, I, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, Father, that... Um, that you are doing this work through your son, that you've given us the ability to see clearly the work that you're doing in our own hearts and the work that you will continue to do uh, in and through us and for others. And so I pray that, that you, would, you would help us as a body to, to be about your work, to be about your mission, that you would... Um, fill our hearts with joy and, and being in your presence that you would help us to um, really come to grips with how much you love us and that we would be able to look towards your son as proof again and again and again no matter what circumstances we are in no matter what struggles we're going through no matter what doubts we encounter Lord, that we can continue to look to your cross as proof of the love that you've loved us with. Lord, would you do your will through us? Would you bring more people into your kingdom, cause new birth? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, at this time, we also uh, partake of